Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM. This is our weekly look at food, agriculture, and the future of our environment uh, here on the Soundbite segment every Tuesday here on WEAA, broadcasting throughout the state of Maryland and also heard uh, on Delmarva Public Radio. And on our way to our conversation with Andrew Lawler, which we're looking forward to in his new book, Why Did the Chicken Cross the Road? The Epic Saga of the Bird That Powers Civilization. Um, we want to remind you this is the day of St. Bridget's Day. This is St. Bridget's Day. We now call her the patron saint of soundbites. And why? Because St. Bridget was the patron saint uh, of dairy maids, of poultry growers, of watermen. Uh, she was born in, as an enslaved woman in Ireland. Uh, allegedly studied with St. Patrick uh, and uh, the man who became St. Patrick and uh, was kind of patterned after many people say the great goddess Bridget who was a Celtic goddess and this Celtic goddess was the goddess of farming and the earth and regeneration and birth Uh, and uh, St. Bridget became St. Bridget of the Catholic Church and the patron saint of, uh, of, and she apparently grew up as a enslaved dairy maid uh, and became the patron saint of dairy maids and as I said, of poultry farmers and watermen, uh, of children without fathers, of all midwives. Uh, and it's the same sense of regeneration, what the earth brings back. So it is St. Bridget's Day, and so she's the, saint, the, the patron saint of agriculture and the earth and the patron saint of sound bites, I would say. Not that we're all becoming Catholic, just thought I would throw that out there. This is an interesting day, St. Bridget's Day. So we begin our sound bites with that little St. Bridget story as we did last year at this time. We are now joined by Andrew Lawler, uh, who wrote the book, Why Did the Chicken Cross the Road? The Epic Saga of the Bird that Powers Civilization. And uh, Andrew Lawler has uh, written for numerous magazines, uh, Science Magazine, Archaeology Magazine. Uh, this is his first book, uh, and it's just an, a fascinating history uh, of, the, uh, of the creature on our planet, uh, 20 billion chickens, outnumbering every other living species, I would imagine, almost except for some insects, I would imagine. Andrew Turner, welcome. Good to have you with us. Hi, Mark. Be here. And folks, you can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can can log on to our Facebook pages. You can tweet me at Mark Steiner. Uh, You can just call us, 410-319-8888. We want to hear your thoughts. I miss, it's Andrew Lawler. I said said Turner. I meant Lawler. I apologize. So, I don't want to change your last name, Andrew. I apologize. <laughs> so, this is, it's fascinating here. So, here we have, we cover the world of chickens on sound bites a great deal because our program is, <clears throat> it comes out of the state of Maryland and we're in the midst of Delmarva, and at least most, some of our programming is. <clears throat> and this is one of the chicken capitals of the planet Earth. So, we wrestle with this notion of, of what phosphorus and everything else and, 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 and the role that industrial chickens play. But, the, where it all began, it's fascinating to me. I mean, how we got, how you kind of tell us this kind of great history from uh, this, 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 this wily jungle fowl and, and how it became now uh, our barnyard breakfast and, and, uh, and for our eggs and more. But it didn't begin this way. Take us back to, this, to that time and to this really interesting character you opened with, uh, William Beeb. Is it BB or Beeb? Oh, it's Beeb. Beeb. Yeah, he was uh, a very fascinating character who uh, lived in New York. He set up the first zoo at an open area for birds. Uh, he was a very eclectic guy. He was really the first celebrity scientist in the 1920s. And he ended up going around uh, South Asia to find out about the extinction of pheasants around the world. That was happening uh, primarily because of the increase in rubber plantations and the fact that women like to have exotic plumes in their hats. And exotic plumes in their hats, but, the, but, the, but finding these, these birds, this guinea fowl, that he, that, that he kind of actually, in some ways, the way you describe him, kind of fell in love with and kind of began to introduce us to what was the... Um, what was the the, the, the the bird that created all the chickens we know today? Yes, and most people know that the the, the dog came from the wolf, that the domesticated animals have a, a progenitor in the wild. But most people don't know that the progenitor of the chicken is, in fact, this exotic bird that comes from South Asia. It's called the red jungle fowl, and it lives all the way from Pakistan to Indonesia, mostly in bamboo thickets, and it's very hard to find. It's very hard to hunt. The British uh, who lived in India 
back in the last century considered it the, the best game bird of all because it was so hard to hunt. Now, you know, one of the things I think that, that you get from, I might get from reading this book, is that, uh, you know, we have these expressions, dumb cluck, um, and we want, can't use some of the words we have on here, chicken blank, and more that you call other people. Um, and But the reality is, from what you describe, and it happens later in the book, we'll talk about in a moment, is that chickens are not really, a, are not a dumb bird, are not a dumb animal. That there's, that there's kind of a, a real curiosity and intelligence about these birds in terms of survival mechanism and more. Yeah, in fact, this red jungle fowl, that it's still the, it's the, the same bird as a chicken. It's still considered the same species. You know, as I mentioned, it's very, very sly. It can, it can really uh, stay safe from predators and hunters. And to do that, it's got to be very aware of what's going on around it. Now, we tend to think of chickens today as, as kind of mindless uh, and that's probably because of the way that we uh, treat them. Uh, if you put any animal in the thousands together in, in small spaces, and they, they, they kind of lose their intelligence. But uh, the chicken originally <laughs> was actually one of, the, one of the smarter birds that has ever existed on the planet. And uh, Beebe and others who have observed it in the wild were really flabbergasted by the way it could, uh, it could stay secreted in these, deep in these woods and avoid... Avoid hunters. So they actually began as a quite intelligent creature. So I, I mean, take a step backwards. I, I really am curious from from your perspective, what, why Andrew Lawler and all the things you've written over this time took this on this worldwide kind of venture to find out the, where the chickens come from, what their roots were, what they meant to society spiritually, how we got to this place of industrial agriculture. I mean, what was your sojourn to get to this particular book, and why? Well, uh, kicking and screaming was the way I was dragged into the, the world of chickens. You know, I, I'm, I'm mainly a science writer. Right. Writing, I write right. a lot about archaeology. I go to the Middle East, Central Asia. And uh, I was trying to, I was pitching a story to Smithsonian Magazine about Bronze Age sailors uh, back 4,000 years ago traveling from India to the West. And the editors were mildly interested. And they said, well, what did these sailors bring? And I said, well, they brought precious stones from Afghanistan. They brought timber from the Himalayas that was taken to current-day Iraq. And the editors were still a little, you know, they were mildly interested. And they said, what else? And I said, well, I, I think I read that, that they found some chicken bones uh, in Arabia that were brought <laughs> by these Indians. And the editor said, great, now that's interesting. Follow the chicken. Follow said, the I, chicken. I, Follow the I, chicken. I, I don't do livestock uh, but as soon as I dived into it and began to really explore it, I realized two things. One is that the, the chicken has been completely ignored or largely ignored by, by scientists uh, and by anthropologists and historians over the millennia. And the second thing was that the, the chicken uh, seems to pop up wherever human civilization takes root. And it's a survivor. I mean, the way you describe chickens in their different environments um, that that things can fall apart, but the chickens have this this kind of uh, this kind of whatever inner strength to survive over the years and over the millennium in places one wouldn't think they would. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the the key to the the spread of the chicken around the globe is that this red jungle fowl, the one that I mentioned that lives in South Asia, it actually lives in these very varied habitats all the way from. Uh, from very swampy, warm areas to the Himalayas. So it, it's versatile. This is a bird that can adapt to new circumstances, and that's what has made it so popular around the world, that you can take this, you can take the chicken virtually anywhere, and as long as you protect it from predators, and as long as you keep it relatively warm, it will thrive. So here we go. Here, so here are these, these wild guinea fowls. They end up... They, they, they end up um... Uh, in Indonesia, I mean, they're in Indonesia, they're in Sri Lanka, they're in the Philippines, and you talk right about about this the Harapan civilization in in the Indus Valley, which you alluded to a moment ago. That four thousand years ago used to make these journeys from across India into uh, Arabia and the, what's now the the east coast of uh, the east coast of Africa, um, and along with them came these chickens. 
That's right. So the chicken began to spread out of its native habitat. So you have this red jungle fowl, which is a wild bird that becomes domesticated. We don't exactly know where and when, but we do know that by the time of the first civilizations, around 2000 BC, so 4,000 years ago, that the chicken starts to appear. First it appears in the Indus civilization in current-day India, and then it begins to move to Mesopotamia, today's Iraq, and then it gets to Egypt uh, and it has a whole other trajectory moving east, of course, across the Pacific, which we can talk about later. But the bird began to move very slowly across these early civilizations. So not long after the pyramids are built, the chicken seems to pop up. But, 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 but I think what you, what you did in this as well, I mean, you, you talked about the chicken not just becoming – the chicken was not a bird that people just dined on. I mean, the no, chicken began as something much different. This is one of the biggest surprises, is that researchers today think that the chicken was not domesticated for its meat or for its eggs, uh, which is a pretty astonishing fact. In fact, it, it looks like the chicken was domesticated for a lot of reasons, but primarily for ritual, for religious purposes. And those religious purposes were to uh, either to slaughter it as an sacrifice to the gods, or to let them fight it out, to have two birds fight each other, two roosters fight each other, which, of course, is what we call today cockfighting. No, which is illegal in most places, but it is clearly a human tradition for several millennia. I mean, yeah, right? like, this is probably how the birds spread. Probably people were mainly men, because it was a, a very much a male-dominated sport. Uh, people would take their birds with them when they went trading and they would fight their birds with locals and sell their their game fowl to people in distant places and that's probably how the chicken began to spread around the world in the beginning so but one of the other pieces of this though when you talk about the the chicken and this is i think important because it crosses almost every civilization before it became a bird just for consumption whether you whether you look at what you wrote about the Zoroastrians in what is now Iran, one of our most ancient religions, the, the, the former the Yazidis and others that are being attacked now by the Islamic State, that, that, that ancient culture from thousands of years ago, uh, the, the Greeks and Romans, um, the, the Aruba culture of West Africa, um, even to some level the, the Hasidic Jews of, of Eastern Europe, for, for them the, the bird, maybe less for the Hasids in some ways, but, but the, the, this chicken is a spiritual bird. It's a, it's a bird of power. It's a bird that, that, that tells people when to go to war and not to go to war. That, I mean, it, it, it has a different... I mean, it's, whoever knew the chicken played this role. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we think today of maybe the eagle or the hawk right. as birds of power. But, but the chicken, uh, way back when, was, and still in some societies today, as you mentioned, is still considered very sacred. And I think the secret is that the bird is a little bit like us, in that this is not a bird that is flying a mile high. It's not a, a bird that is living on mountaintops. It's a bird that lives with us. It lives in our barnyards. It lives nearby. It's a very familiar bird, and yet it is a bird. It's very different. It still knows how to communicate with the heavens in a way that, that we humans can't. So the chicken was considered to be this bird that had had a, a, a special landline to the to the heavens. It knew something that we needed to know, and therefore it became sacred. And yet it was close enough to us, it was similar enough to humans, um, you know, pecking around in a barnyard trying to make a living, that <laughs> it, was, it was considered a, a worthy sacrifice, that, that when you sacrifice a chicken, you're sacrificing something that's not quite human, but 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 closer to it than, say, an eagle or some wild animal. So you have this, I mean, the way you describe it, you have the chicken, and before I want to get into I really do want to kind of focus in on what happens between West Africa and America and where we come to now and how the chicken even gotten here before the Europeans got here, which is a fascinating piece of our history as well. But but, but, but the, the, the idea of how this chicken goes from, from India to Mesopotamia, to ancient Iran, ancient Iraq, uh, into Egypt, where it becomes, as you write about this kind of uh, sacred bird lifted on a pedestal when it first came uh, into Egypt, and, and, and the role it played in those ancient civilizations, and the role it played in, in Greece and ancient, ancient Greece and Rome. I mean, this is, again, pieces of the history of this bird um, that we never heard before, at least I never heard before. I went to, I visited lots and lots of museums in, in Europe and the United States and just looking at the old Greek pots, for example, and 
every time you know, I would think I'm never going to see a chicken here, I would run across a chicken. Usually it would, be, it would be sitting on top of a pedestal on a Greek vase or on an ancient Mesopotamian uh, signet seal. Or I, Everywhere I looked, I found this, this chicken sitting on top of a column. And in fact, you find it in Christianity because there's a, a church in Jerusalem called the, the Church of the Holy Rooster. And it's uh, <laughs> the central symbol of it is a chicken sitting on the pillar. Now, of course, we know from the Gospels that there's the, the scene where Jesus tells Peter, you know, you will betray me before the cock crows three times. And, you know, it's kind of a throwaway line, but uh, it, it actually, I think, harks back to this idea that the chicken is our, a spiritual awakener, that it's a bird that awakens us from our, from our spiritual sleep, just as the physical rooster in, in ancient times and still in South Asia today, if you've ever traveled there, wakes you up very early before the sun has even risen. So here's this, the connection here for me, and I want you to make it for us, is, the, is this is the chicken that, that becomes kind of sacred and has a real nature of the, of the, of the, of the male chicken of the cock um, that may, may have gotten to Persia in 1200 and, and goes to Egypt but then ends up in Greece and Rome and Aesop writes the cock and the jewel and Aristophanes, as you wrote about it, writes this piece called The Power Drunken Bird. I mean, I, I really want our listeners to get a sense of, of this travel and what in, the, in our kind of more ancient civilizations the, the role it played. Well, part of this is that you know today the chicken is so common that it's hard for us to imagine it being exotic, much less sacred. But you got to remember that that back you know several thousand years ago, this bird appeared, and and the 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 ancient chicken was was spectacularly beautiful. The the particularly the rooster, the the male had these bright colors, blue and green and silver and gold. It was a, a really beautiful bird, and so it was it was considered this. It's almost like we would think about a peacock today, that it, was, it had colors that most people had never seen on an animal. So it was a really spectacularly uh, beautiful creature. And that made it uh, something that the kings wanted, and then eventually became something that people wanted to, uh, to if not worship, to at least venerate, uh, because they saw it as something that came from some distant place that was sent by the gods. And of course, the, the Romans... They now the Romans loved a good roast chicken. Don't get me wrong; they didn't consider it so <laughs> sacred that they couldn't eat it. Uh, but you would never think of going to war in ancient Rome unless you ch- first would check with the sacred chickens to see if they would eat the sacred breakfast that was made for them. If they didn't, then it was definitely a time for you to back off and to either uh, you know not fight that day or to uh, sign a peace treaty. It's hard to imagine today that chickens would would rule the world in that way, but they certainly did back then. Well, they rule the world in a different way now, which I want to get to. So <laughs> the people who own the chickens rule the world in a different way. But 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 that but when you one last thing here, I mean when you talk about um, you know the Zoroastrians and the, the goddess Ohura Mazda and the Chinese they claim that the, the, the Vermilion Lord uh, became a chicken from a human, and and you write so from German, Germanic graves to Japanese shrines, the chicken emerged at the start of our common era as a symbol of light, truth, and resurrection across dozens of religious traditions spanning Asia and Europe. I mean, I think, and 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 then things begin to change. What I found fascinating was the way you described that I never heard of before, that in Rome, the art in some ways the beginning of the industrialized chicken was in Rome. Yeah, the Romans were the first, although they did consider it sacred, uh, you know, they did like their roast chicken. And they were the first to, to really begin to grow chickens on a, on a mass scale. And they figured out, you know, what a perfect flock size is, how to, how to uh, protect them from disease, how to feed them. Uh, you didn't want white chickens, for example, because those were the kind of chickens that a hawk would spot in a field and make off with. So you wanted a dark chicken that would blend in with the environment. The Romans really raised... Uh, poultry to a to a very very high art and, and, and the way you describe them they actually built these chicken houses where they raised raised chickens yeah, by had, the hundreds i mean very, was, elaborate, very elaborate chicken houses and, and really the romans set the bar for raising chickens and it wasn't until uh the past century that that we've really done it differently and for the most part the what the way that that chickens were raised in roman times remained the standard for another uh, thousand or two years so uh, I, I think that, that uh, the, one of the fascinating pieces to me was when you wrote about um, the, what happened in, in, in the continent of Africa 
Um, yeah, this, this this part is fascinating because we don't know a lot about the the history of sub-Saharan Africa, partly because archaeologists haven't spent much time there, and partly because it's very hard to find written materials. And a lot of uh, the artifacts left behind were made of wood, and so have since have since faded away. But they there have been some some really interesting digs uh, in Central Africa that have found that chickens actually arrived in Africa in the early centuries A.D. So say first, second, third century A.D. And there is really strong evidence that the appearance of the chickens is what allowed uh, sub-Saharan Africans to begin to create towns and then cities. That the chickens provided a cheap form of protein. They also were used for religious purposes. And if it, it was a largely a cattle culture up until then in, in most parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And when you had this small bird that you could sacrifice, it kind of democratized religion because prior to that, you want to sacrifice something, you probably had to sacrifice a cow, and you have to be pretty wealthy to sacrifice a cow on a regular basis. So chickens created this kind of uh, urban and religious revolution in Central and West Africa, which led to the development of these large states, which uh, appeared in the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. And I mean, the way you describe them, though, I think that you, I think one of the lines you used in the book was that that, that the chickens' arrival it looks like, and you can describe why in a moment, mostly from probably from East Africa over to Nigeria, as opposed to down from the Mediterranean. That that um, that the chickens' arrival was nothing short of revolutionary. That it kind of pushed empires into a more egalitarian way and actually gave women more power. Yeah, and who would have thought that the chicken, that the lowly chicken, could have this impact on the whole continent? But it's clear that it provided uh, this protein. It allowed women to be able to raise uh, an animal because cattle was generally men's business. So it really gave women a, a, a say in society that that in most cattle cultures they don't have. So I mean, and so and you look at that. I mean, that and you you, you talk about the 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 Kirikongo, uh, nation and 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 the development of, of the, the power of chickens and the Aruba people of what's now Nigeria that became this Santeria religion. I mean, this is so these root. I mean, the roots are deep in West Africa, but they go yeah. and they go and they're and they're thousands of maybe over a thousand years old. Of the way you describe it, maybe older than that, and 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 they transfer to this country. Yeah, the the Yoruba people have. The a, uh, they still have a. Uh, a belief that it was a giant chicken that created the land itself, that as it pecked around and it used its talons in, in the soil, that it created the mountains and the hills and the valleys and the rivers of that area. So the chicken was was uh, was central and still is central to the Yoruban uh, view of the world. And of course, as you mentioned, that a lot of West Africans, including many Yoruban, were brought to the Americas uh, in the slave trade. And I, I, I want to get into that in, in, after this break because they talk a bit about that. And, the, and I think the, 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 what happens in the Western Hemisphere and what happened between the, the trade between China and the West to change the nature of chickens and, and what happened during the, the enslavement of Africans in this hemisphere is just a fascinating piece of history that, that whenever I, I read this part of the book to people and talk about it, they're just aghast. They never heard of any of this. Um, and the role it played. So I want to, we're going to get into all that. But we're going to take a brief break in just a moment. We're here talking uh, to Andrew Lawler, who has written the book, Why Did the Chicken Cross the Road? The Epic Saga of the Bird That Powered Civilization. And our friend and frequent guest, Winona Howder, uh, uh, said it reads like a detective story. Fascinating. And I would say it does. It's a really well-written book. Uh, and we're going to take a very brief break and come back. On the way to break, I want to remind you, The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, a Baltimore's credit union offering a full range of services, financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org, MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. We'll be right back with Andrew Lawler and how the chicken got here. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Welcome back. Here's the Mark Steiner Show on WEAA 88.9 FM, your source for cool jazz and more, the voice of the community. And uh, on our weekly look at food, farming, and the agriculture and the future of our environment, we're talking today with Andrew Lawler about his book, Why Did the Chicken Cross the Road? Why Did the Chicken Cross the World? The Road. That's good, Mark. Uh, The the World. And on our way there, let me remind you that the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From school funding to testing, you can learn about the important issues affecting Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's, pardon me, Maryland State Education Association's website at MarylandEducators.org. That's MarylandEducators.org. And back to Andrew Lawler. Join us here, join us here, four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. So before I, I leap into the the states here and what happened during the enslavement of Africans and the role that chicken played there and how it grew from there in our own country and in the West here, um, th- there was something that occurred in the eighteen forties when China began to open up, and that began to change the nature of 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 uh, the world of chickens in the West. Yes, this was the the big bang of chickendom, if you will. Uh, This is when the chicken of the East met the chicken of the West. And really the key figure in the modern chicken is Queen Victoria because she was given as a gift several Chinese chickens. And these were not just your regular chickens. These were extremely exotic chickens that were large. They had almost fur on them, these feathers that were, uh, were quite extraordinary that no one in England had ever seen anything like it. She began to collect chickens and... This created a a kind of frenzy for exotic chicken collecting. And so people were paying thousands of dollars for a single chicken, uh, the ones that were brought from China, uh, as soon as China was opened up as a result of the the British Opium Wars. Uh, So this is what really uh, laid the foundation for the, the modern chicken. I mean, and and that began the crossbreeding of chickens and, and how we got to the chickens that are actually the chickens that we raise today. Yeah, that's right, because they, you, you kind of combined the, the best of the East, which was birds that were pretty gentle and large. They had a lot of meat to them uh, with these very hardy, scrawny, kind of ornery chickens that people in Europe were used to at the time. And when you combine those chickens, you provided this, you created a, a kind of genetic code which made it possible for the modern chicken. And, I mean, literally, that, the way you describe it is that when this happened, the chickens in the West began producing more eggs and getting, having more meat. The, like the Plymouth Rock and the Rhode Island Red kind of came all out of this world of the chickens. The, the, chicken, the, the chickens actually came from where chickens came from in the beginning, Asia, coming back to the West and changing the nature of, of the chicken industry and what chickens looked like, sounded like, and I mean, not sounded like, but tasted like. Yeah, exactly, and <laughs> and uh, you know, right down to our our daily diets today for most of us. So, I, I'm going to come back to this this piece in the book that I again I think that when you when I look at American history and I look at who we are as a people and where traditions come from, um, the fact that that the West enslaved millions of Africans and part of it enslaving Africans, the Africans came here as enslaved people. They brought mu- many people brought their culture with them. And part of that culture was raising chickens out of West Africa um, and the knowledge of how to do that. And that was the only animal that the enslavers allowed the enslaved to raise. That's right. And you got to remember back in the 1600s when places like Maryland were first settled by whites, uh, it was a land where you had all kinds of animals to eat. You had, you had ducks, you had geese, you had pheasant, you had innumerable wild birds uh, plus, you had those birds that had been brought by the European colonists themselves. So the chicken was pretty low on the totem pole of uh, birds that you would want to eat. And, and low on the totem pole, which is one of the reasons they allowed the enslaved people to to to, to raise them. But yeah, it, exactly. But, but, exactly. It, but it became more than that. I mean, the way you describe it, and I, this again, I think, I mean, to me, anytime we – we open the world and our ears and, and minds to what enslavement meant for this country and the culture and nature and the economy of this country. The idea that this was, this was, this was the way, in many ways, that an underground economy with money developed among enslaved people and, and, the, and they could actually – enslaved people could actually sell the chickens to the people who, who were the enslavers and others. I mean this is, this is a significant piece. Yeah, this is, it's it's a fascinating story that that only one or two scholars have uh, have really delved into, 
And so what, what happened was because, because chickens were low on the totem pole of what white settlers were interested in, they, they left the chickens to the African-Americans. And they just weren't considered even, you, you know, you wouldn't even notice a chicken. So African-Americans, many of whom came from West Africa and had a long tradition of raising chickens, they were very adept at, uh, at how to you know, care for flocks, how to feed them, how to prevent disease. Uh, they had a lot of the skills, uh, more skills than the Europeans had when it came to taking care of chickens. So they began to, to uh, grow their own chickens on plantations like Monticello uh, or Mount Vernon. And the white planters allowed them not just to grow the chickens, but they also would buy chickens from their slaves. So it was really one of the few ways that African Americans had to earn money uh, and to really uh, take part in the entrepreneurial spirit of the country at the time. And it wasn't just enslaved Africans, it was also freed blacks who also participated in this trade. So by the time of uh, the revolution and just after, uh, there's, it was very clear that African Americans were the were considered the general chicken merchants. That if you wanted chickens, you needed to find somebody who was an African American because they were the ones that knew how to do it. And 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 you, you, you I mean, you talk about how the the, the, so the enslaved people of this country created the appetite for chicken. You talk about the 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 the, the origination of, of fried chicken and oil came from enslaved Americans. And and even that interesting little story about Gabriel Prosser and his. Uh, revolutionaries rebellion against against the slave owners and how that was involved in all this as well. Yeah, this is this is what what it, it's such a, a great story. So uh, you have slaves who were who are uh, busy you know, making what money they can off of chickens. And remember, who was cooking in the kitchens of a lot of these plantations? Well, often it was African American women, and they often would bring their traditional recipes to the tables that were uh, were eaten by the whites. And one of those dishes was this this dish where you would take a chicken and you would cut it up and you would fry it in palm oil, which is very common in West Africa. Now, you didn't have palm oil in the United States or in the colonies at the time, but there were plenty of other oils, peanut oil and other oils that you could use. So they began to serve fried chicken to their masters. And, of course, there was an economic incentive for them to get their, the planters, the white masters, to buy chickens from their friends and relatives who were growing them out back. So it became this you know, fascinating uh, kind of closed circle where you had uh, African-American cooks uh, really pushing the chicken uh, on, on the white planters, who in turn were buying more chickens from from their slaves. And this is what made chicken really, really popular in plantations. So now let me get to Gabriel Prosser. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a little background. So around 1800 in Haiti, there was a slave And the slaves there managed to throw off the, the chains of their enslavement. Uh, it was a, a French colony. And people in the United States were the white people in the South were terrified that this was going to happen in the American South. So, uh, in fact, it almost did. In Richmond, there was a blacksmith. Uh, He was an enslaved blacksmith named Gabriel Prosser, and he planned a rebellion. He was going to take over the government of Virginia, based in Richmond, where he lived. Well, the plot was discovered, and during his... uh, when when he was uh, uh, being arraigned, he gave uh, a talk where he said, you know, my intention was to, you know, create a black government in Virginia, and I was going to be in charge of it, and my queen was going to be Queen Molly. She was going to be the wife of the federal marshal, was going to become his new queen in this new <laughs> government. Now, this, of course, inf- had in- this infuriated the federal marshal, who wanted all of the plotters killed. Thomas Jefferson, meanwhile, was running for president. He didn't want to, he did not want uh, he wanted to look like he was being uh, uh, a little cooler-headed because he wanted, did not want uh, he wanted to get the votes in the North. So he instead convinced the governor of Virginia to only uh, hang maybe you know most of them, but not all of them. And this was considered to be rather temperate at the time. So what happened was, as a result, Thomas Jefferson was elected. And when he was elected, he fired this federal marshal who had opposed him and wanted all of the plotters killed. 
So the federal marshal fell on hard times because he lost his job. His wife, Queen Molly, as she was known forever after in Richmond, wrote a cookbook in order to uh, make ends meet. And that cookbook included the first recipe for fried chicken, which basically is very, very similar, of course, to what she clearly learned from African-American cooks. So and let, let's, let's leap up here in the time we have left to the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. This is, so we have this chicken in America. And it becomes, the way you can describe it better than I, but it becomes, because of African Americans, because of Jewish immigrants and their demand for chicken in the late 1800s, it becomes a giant, the industry begins. So it's African Americans and women who are doing this in our country in the beginning before it becomes really industrialized. But this is an interesting period between the 1880s and 1920s when uh, it was mostly black folks and women, white women, who were raising these chickens. Uh, and it, it begins to change the nature of, of how chickens are used in America. Yeah, and what changed was that you had this this sudden influx of millions and millions of Jewish immigrants, mainly from Eastern Europe. And these people arrived, most of them ended up in New York City, and they wanted chicken because they didn't eat pork, because there were religious prescriptions against it, and beef was too expensive. So on the Sabbath, when you were supposed to you know, eat well and enjoy yourself, they wanted chicken. And the trouble was there wasn't much in the way of chicken in the United States that wasn't you know, immediately local. So this market sprang up. So you had this really interesting combination of Jews coming in from Eastern Europe, creating a market in this urban area, New York, uh, and then rural women, uh, both white and black in the South, who say, hey, here's an opportunity. And the railroads that are connecting the rural South with the North. So this combination... Uh, created the modern industrial chicken because what it did was it allowed women to raise chickens on their farms uh, along with eggs, pack them up, send them off to the city, and they got good money for it. So this was one of the few ways that, that rural, poor rural women in the South, again, both, both black and white, were able to, to actually make some money. Uh, and this was women's work, but it, it suddenly became a women's industry, and it became quite lucrative. In North Carolina, the 1920s, you know, chicken, the chicken business uh, was growing much faster than even tobacco. I mean, you talk about in Delmarva in 1925, the, the, where raised 50,000 chickens. By 1935, it was 7 million. And this woman, Celia Steele, in 1923 from Delaware, actually began this kind of, the, the, without knowing it in many ways, this industrialization of chicken that women were soon shut out of. Yeah, the, the broiler industry, which is the which is chickens that are grown for their meat, not chickens that are grown for their eggs. Those would be layers. You know, in the past, there were layers and broilers were all mixed up together. But Celia Steele, she ordered she ordered uh, fifty chickens uh, just to to be able to produce some eggs. She lived uh, on a on a farm out uh, in Delmarva in, in Delaware, and. They instead, by accident, sent her 500. She didn't know what to do with them. So she put them in a shed and raised them and fed them and then sold them as meat to New York. And she realized that she was onto something big. And that was the beginning of the broiler business. And the business really increased. Uh, it quadrupled within a few years. She became you know, quite wealthy. And it spread around the country. But really, Delmarva was the center of the early broiler business. That's where it was all happening because it was located close to New York and Philadelphia and Washington and Norfolk, all these urban areas that suddenly were demanding large amounts of chicken meat. So, and this, is, so this is the interesting piece of the history here. And, I, and so you, you have this, this world that you describe as being largely run by women and African-Americans, but things begin to change. And there's a man named Howard Pierce from what it was the AMP, uh, as you would describe it, the Walmart of yesterday, uh, and creates this Chicken for Tomorrow committee. Yeah, so what, what happened was in, in World War II, uh, people, uh, civilians that is, weren't able to get access to the pork and the beef to which Americans were accustomed. That meat was set aside for the troops. So people had to eat more chicken. There wasn't much choice. So the chicken business began to boom during World War II. And at the end of the war, the, the chicken industry, which now increasingly was dominated by, by white men, uh, decided that, uh, that they would be in real trouble when the war ended, and suddenly people could go back to eating pork and beef. So the question was, how do you get American consumers to keep eating chicken? And the answer was to come up with a, with a very large chicken that had breasts large enough that you could cut it up into steaks so that it would almost resemble the pork and the beef to which Americans were accustomed. Because remember, chicken at that time was 
was pretty small and scrawny, and you might put it in the pot for Sunday dinner if that hen was no longer laying eggs. But it was it was pretty expensive, and again, it was mainly chickens were egg machines. They didn't people weren't thinking much about them as as broilers, you know, until World War II. So by then, they re- the industry realized they had to do something, and that's when they formed the Chicken of Tomorrow Committee. And it was a national contest. There were uh, almost every state had a had a little subcommittee. And the idea was to get people to produce, to cross chickens, to breed the chicken that will, would produce the most eggs, the, bo- the most meat, and it would do it with the least amount of feed. So here we have a time, and this is, these stats you put in here are really interesting. You, you wrote that the National Chicken Council, which was created in 1954, I think your words were something like all-white, all-male, mostly southern, representing 95% of the chicken meat production. And you look at where the country is now, 300,000 workers in this industry, 9 billion birds, 37 billion pounds of chicken, $70 billion spent by consumers. And Delmarva, this 178-mile strip of land that you write about that we live near or on in this listening audience, um, raises one of every 15 chickens in in the country, uh, 12 million birds a week. So, I mean, so we've gone from this, from this, holy symbol of uh, a powerful beast that, 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 uh, that stands up and fights to a chicken in a cage uh, that, um, that, that takes over entire areas like Delmarva. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a, a sudden shift. I mean, if you look at it in terms of, of history and the thousands of years the chicken has been part of our lives in most cultures, it is a sudden and dramatic change that has taken place in the, uh, the, the day-to-day life of the bird. And you know, what I, find, I found most disturbing of all uh, was that the chicken, under U.S. law, if it's raised for food, if it's raised for meat, it's not considered an animal. There are, in fact, no guidelines in place to protect chickens that are raised for meat. And I found that astonishing, given uh, how much the chicken has uh, provided for us, not just in terms of meat, but also in you know, the, what we've been discussing in terms of religion, entertainment, you name it. But today, the chicken is considered almost a vegetable. Uh, it's not even worthy of being granted the uh, status as an animal. So, and, and, you, and that's the last part of your book here, which I find fascinating, where you interviewed Janice Seaford, and uh, you visit this fellow named Bill Brown and, and Giorgio Valortigara, Val I imagine that's his name, on the Neuroscience Intelligence of Chickens. And I'm, I'm wondering where you begin to come to with this. I mean, um, what, 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 you, what, what grew out of you, what you learned in this process about all this, the questions that maybe you're still asking. Yeah, and, and this, it was it was it's a difficult journey. Um, I'm you know I'm a science writer. I've never really given a whole lot of thought to the way meat was raised or a whole lot of thought to the the chicken that I eat. And it really has forced me to confront the system we've created. Now, in some ways, you know, it's 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 amazing uh, the the system that Tyson and Purdue and others have created uh, really can produce very very cheap meat. You know, it's the first time in history that Americans that anybody in the world has been able to buy meat at such a low price. But, you know, the, the, there are these hidden costs that I kept running across that, that I found so disturbing. Uh, one is the animal welfare that we've already mentioned. The chickens aren't considered animals, and so you can imagine the way they're treated. They're treated, uh, you know, in, in, in ways that are you know, really quite barbaric. Uh, and along with that are the issues around uh, the waste that chickens produce. And certainly Delmarva is struggling with this because you know chicken manure is is very hot and it's very it's very difficult to just put on a field uh, and once it gets into the water it can foul waterways and certainly there have been issues in the Chesapeake Bay that are directly caused by the chicken industry which brings a lot of jobs to Delmarva but also exacts a, a pretty high environmental price and along with that it's just the way the, the workers are, are treated and ironically many of these workers are African Americans uh, you know the people who really founded the the, the modern chicken in this country who laid foundation for the industry, they often are the ones who are the, the least paid in a job that is, uh, that is extremely difficult and often quite dangerous. It always ranks as one of the most dangerous jobs that you can have in this country. So, you know, I found all this really disturbing, and I don't believe that we will all stop eating chicken and become vegetarians. I think it's a you know, personal choice people have to make. But what I would like to see as an American, I want to see more choice in the chicken that I buy. 
I want to be able to pay a little bit more for a chicken that I know has been raised in standards that are a little bit higher, where they're treated a little bit better, and, and also uh, chicken that maybe tastes a little bit better, because our modern chicken is pretty tasteless. When I traveled around the world, places like Vietnam or Africa, you know, the chicken there is often you know, quite different and very, very tasty, and they have the choice. I don't understand why we don't. And, I, mean, I, I love that piece where you went to France and, and uh, ate. Uh, my French is not the best. My wife's is fluent. But it's Bresse, it's Bresse chicken? Bresse, yeah, the Bresse chicken. The Bresse chicken, yes. Uh, and, you know, yeah, the, the Bresse chicken is amazing because it, you know, it's, it's grown. And what's interesting is it's not just the, the way a chicken is raised. It's not just the way that, what it's fed uh, or how it's housed. The, these Bresse chickens actually predate the modern industrial bird that we have in America. They're, they're not chicken of tomorrow contest birds, and so they look quite different, and they taste quite different. And it's very, very hard to find anything like that in the United States, although there are a couple of companies that are beginning to produce birds that are similar to the breast bird, which I have to say was amazingly delicious. And I went to farms to visit them, and the birds are, uh, they, they graze out in the fields, and then the last couple of weeks they're, they're fed a special porridge before they're slaughtered, and it, it really gives them an amazing taste. They're quite expensive, but I think uh, Americans probably would be willing to pay a little bit more uh, to ensure that not only are they getting better taste, but they're buying a bird that they can feel better about. So here we have a, a world, just as we close, as you described, there's no U.S. law that, that, that chickens have no rights or not for, for humane treatment, but you talk about how people around the world are studying uh, the intelligence of chickens uh, as well as the story you have out of Kenya where they're trying to create a chicken industry and maybe trying to do it in a different way. Yeah, and the... the, the Research that's going on around chicken intelligence is really fascinating. Uh, <clears throat> I visited this this researcher you mentioned in Italy, and you know he's doing these amazing experiments with two day old chicks. And he said to me, you know, these chicks actually have, uh, in some cases, a logical mind which rivals those of my graduate students. <laughs> and he was really he was really only half joking that that at two days out of the shell, and these birds actually can can count. They can make decisions that are quite sophisticated. That we're learning from very simple experiments that chickens are, are really quite smart, and uh, in some ways very similar to us uh, in their intelligence. Uh, and not only that, but chickens are also um, they're they're able to uh, to use their intelligence in ways that 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 we can't imagine today because they're not given the opportunity. Obviously, if you cram a lot of thousands and thousands of birds together they're going to seem like a pretty dumb species. You know, how did they get there? But the truth is, even with these modern chickens, if you take them aside and you, you actually watch their behavior, they're quite smart. And this, it was, it's a great book. And we didn't say one thing we can't talk about. We're just about out of time. But the listeners know that the part of what the chickens have taught us is that Hawaiians got here before the Europeans and left their chickens on the West Coast or what is now South America, which is another fascinating piece of the story and more. This has been an amazing history wrote Andrew Lawler. And I want to thank you for writing the book. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And the book is Why Did the Chicken Cross the World? The Epic Saga of the Bird that Power Civilization by Andrew Lawler, L-A-W-L-E-R, uh, on Atria Books. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us. All right. Take care. You too. And to close out our program this week, we have a special treat. Michael Twitty joins us to share a recipe. He's a culinary historian of African and African-American foodways, <clears throat> and he blogs at Afroculinaria. Here's Michael Twitty with a recipe for leftover couscous salad. This recipe is for leftover couscous salad. Couscous is actually a type of pasta. It's not a grain. People think it's a grain. Couscous is a semolina crumb that reconstitutes in water and puffs up just like orzo or any other kind of small pasta. And it's typically enjoyed in North and West Africa. And so that's, that's a big sort of like staple dish. It's the rice of North Africa. And it's eaten with every meal. It's very simple, very healthy, uh, very easy to prepare. Uh, you'll need two cups of cold leftover couscous. And if you don't know how to cook couscous, basically you take five-minute couscous, you put it in water, 
You don't even have to let it cook. You bring the water to a boil, follow the directions of the back of the box, and you will have perfect couscous in five minutes. Let that couscous chill. And then you're going to add to it a lot of chopped vegetables and seasonings. Two tablespoons each of yellow, green, and red bell pepper. Two tablespoons of chopped red onion. Two tablespoons of sliced green onion. Two tablespoons of Italian parsley. Two tablespoons of dried cranberries or golden raisins, and that's optional. Kosher salt to taste. Coarse black pepper to taste. And you can even spike it with a little bit of red wine vinegar, a little bit of olive oil, and a little bit of agave or honey. You put it in a bowl and mix it. You add more vinegar or more oil to taste. You chill it for an hour, and then you enjoy it. The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Public Radio Delmarva is Christopher Rank. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcasts on iTunes. For Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And for WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.